Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo Community Director. Today's podcast is with Nicole Eva, librarian at the University of Lethbridge. So welcome, Nicole. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So for today's topic, we're going to be discussing whose research is it anyway on the differences between academic social networks versus institutional repositories. So my first question is, can you describe the difference between an academic social network and institutional repositories? Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, institutional repositories are really meant to be a long-term archive and institutions output. So it's basically, it conforms to certain standards about preserving long-term access and being kind of a a forever place to store someone's research. And ideally, it would be a place where everyone in the institution would store their research, whether it's published elsewhere, which is perfectly fine, but just one place that would hold all of our institutional output. And that includes, you know, it can include things like presentations and other formats of of work besides just journal articles. Academic social networks are similar in that they can hold copies of research articles, for example, um, as well as presentations and things like that. But they they add in a networking component. So people create profiles. They can add research interests. They can interact with other researchers whose work they're interested in. And then a lot of them will also, once you've been on them, will kind of get an idea of the kind of research that you're interested in, whether you posted your own research or searched for other people's research and start pushing some of those articles to you. So that helps uh, the discoverability of some of those things within those closed networks. So not, you know, so they have this sort of added networking, social networking element to them, which institutional repositories don't have, Mm -hmm. but they also aren't, they're also for profit potentially, right? Most people use the free version, but these are these are created by corporate entities. They are not nonprofits. They are not run by academics. They are run by corporate entities who theoretically want to monetize them, and in fact, some of them do, and um, are not guaranteed to be a long-term preservation solution as institutional repositories are. Great. Thank you. And so why do researchers choose to deposit their papers in an academic social network versus their institutional repository? So, you know, what are sort of like some of the pros and cons? Yeah. So, I mean, I think from the literature and from what what researchers will tell you, they seem to think it's easier to put them in the academic social networks as opposed to the institutional repository. Why, I'm not sure, because either way, you're doing the work of going to a place. And I would actually argue that many institutional repositories that are mediated by the library, as opposed to having the researcher self-deposit, they're probably even easier to get into your institutional repository. But there is a perception out there that it's easier to put your stuff on academic social networks. This is partly maybe because some academic social networks, um, such as ResearchGate, will email you if they they're crawling google they notice 
they find a new article, they will automatically email the author and say, hey, we saw you published a new article. Do you want to put that in ResearchGate? And you basically click yes, and it's there. Mm. So, I mean, there's obviously lack of control over how well it's cited and how good that metadata is once it's in there. But, and of course, the copyright implications of that. But in that sense, it's easier. I think also that that social element of it, right? That's a big draw probably for many researchers if they are using it as a networking tool, which some of them do. I think they think it will be more findable if it's in those places. But Google, if someone's Googling, it will pick up an article in an academic social network as easily as it will pick up an an article in an institutional repository. So really the findability and discoverability would be no different between the two. Great. Thank you. How does the research services group at your university oversee the institutional repositories? So we were sort of the scholarly communications group on in our library, and we do have somebody from our own. We have an internal IT department, so we have a representative on that group from there. And so if we have issues with our institutional repository or we want to make improvements, for example, we added a citation generator last year. We just work with the IT department to make that stuff happen and make those improvements happen. We're using DSpace as our backbone of our institutional repository. So it is somewhat a little bit customizable. It's based on an open source software. So they can do all that technical stuff to make it work. And we can bring the ideas of this is what we'd like it to look like. So I'm curious, can anyone have access to the articles or is it only um, people at University of Lethbridge can access it? No, anyone can access it. Anyone could go to our web our website or the institutional repository website and find these articles, open them, look at them, read them, download them. Um, they are, it is indexed by Google. Um, so it's, and indexed in many, there are like directories of repositories. It, it gets picked up by that, mm-hmm. which is ultimately how it gets fed to Google. It also gets fed into our discovery layer. So we have a discovery layer at our library, which will pull out results from our institutional repository as well. Now, it's only U of L researchers that can deposit their work right. in our institutional repository, right? But anyone can access those works now. So um, when you say Google does that, I'm just learning about this myself. So does that go into Google Scholar then? Yes. Yeah. So then I think, I think well, I, it will come up in the Google Scholar results, I Got think, it. is how it works. Because Google Scholar is the one that's indexing these repo- directories of repositories, right, that pulls those results out there. Mm-hmm. I think is how it works, to be honest. Right? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a sort of vague idea, too. How it I do know if you can do a search, it works. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I need to know. Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what? Uh, and so is this a common practice across universities that they're yes. open source? So, okay. Yeah. Most, most universities, I think, would have institutional repositories okay. for their own work. And a lot of them, they start out as being even just a place to hold theses and dissertations, mm-hmm. right? So they want a place to be able to publish those immediately once they've been defended and they're successful. And so that is, of course, one big element of our own institutional repository. But then we also have faculty papers in, in okay. as well. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying some yeah. of that for me. <laughs> <laughs>
So in your you did a, a study in regards to this, looking at the difference between the academic social networks and institutional repositories, or at least the one at University of Lethbridge that you have. Yeah. And what were the methods that you used for that study? So basically, I went to both academia.edu and ResearchGate, and those are the two most prominent ones, especially that will hold full text copies of the articles. And you can search by institutional affiliation. Uh, so I searched for University of Lethbridge content in both of those places and then exported those lists into Excel and then basically went through. We only included ones that had something full text. So if it was only a profile that someone had created that claimed affiliation with U of L, if they only had created a profile but never actually added any full text of any articles or even any citations to an article, we didn't include them because they were basically just an empty shell. And we also tried to exclude students where possible. I think it's one of them has a like student category. You can say undergraduate, graduate, alumni, faculty. We didn't want to include undergraduates because in general, our institutional repository doesn't include undergraduate materials. So we were really just look, interested in looking at graduate students and faculty and how they were using these compared to our institutional repository. So then we basically downloaded the Excel sheets of the content in each, compared that to, went through and made sure that these people actually were affiliated with the University of Lethbridge. Several weren't, which was sort of a problem, but we went against our directory and just sort of manually searched for all the ones that we didn't personally recognize. Um, I had a co-op student helping me with this, this part of it. And then basically, at, then I went into the institutional repository and everybody that we had found in one of these academic social networks, we also searched to see had they been depositing things in our institutional repository and then just added them to that spreadsheet as well. Okay, yeah. And so what technology did you use to collect the data and analyze it? So it was definitely the spreadsheets, but did you do any use anything else? No, just the spreadsheets. Yeah. And then even created the graphs right out of the spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. And for the results, how did the use of the academic social networks differ between what you found with institutional repository? So in general, both of those academic social networks were far more used by our researchers than they were using the institutional repository. So it was like hugely more popular way more items in, you know, like 10 times more items in, in the institution or in the academic social networks than in the institutional repository. Um, in both cases, ResearchGate was more popular with our institutions researchers, but both of them had far more content from our researchers than those researchers had put into the institutional repository. Now, the one interesting thing that we did find was those people that were putting things on academic social networks were also the larger contributors to our institutional repository. Almost none of them had the same amount of things. So say they put 10 things on their academic, on ResearchGate, but maybe one thing in the institutional repository. So there was quite a discrepancy, but the people that were putting in both were the, the ones using those academic social networks more. So it seems that if you are amenable to depositing your things in an academic social network, you're also 
at least not opposed to putting it in the institutional repository. So in that sense, it was interesting because I think we often see them as competitors, right? Oh, people are using that instead of this. I think they're using both. They're just, for whatever reason, putting more into the academic social networks than they are into the actual repository. Is that because they those networks make it easier? It must be, even though there is still, you know, I know from my own experience, and I have profiles on these things because I'm interested in them and I want to know how they work. They don't prompt me for everything. I still have to go in and add articles to say all three places. Right. So, you know, and in my process, I think, okay, well, I'm, I published something. I'm going to send emails off to our institutional repository, ask them to put it. I'm also going to send, go to these other sites and place them there too. Right. And so to me, if you're doing one, it shouldn't be any harder to add the advert. It's our sort of already part of your process. So this is one of my questions is I can't quite figure out why and it's and it's that easy they just have to send an email to in fact for ours so every institution would have it probably their own process but for us because we want to mediate those those deposits because in the early days when we allowed researchers to physically deposit their own things there was a lack of authority control right so mistakes in the metadata and not people not filling out things properly and maybe not checking the copyrights properly. And so we wanted to get that control back and ensure that we double check the copyright, that we are putting the allowed version in the institutional repository. So we're not contributing any copyright that we shouldn't be. And then, you know, ensuring authority control over like formatting names and departments and all that kind of stuff. So really all they have to do is send us a citation, say, I published this, can you put it in the institutional repository? Then the person that does that worksheet double checks, okay, well, this journal will allow us to put in the final version, or this journal will allow us to put in the postprint, you know, the post-reviewed Word doc, for example. And then they might go back to the researcher and say, okay, well, I need your postprint. And so as long as they've kept that, mm-hmm. they just have to email it back. And that's literally, it's like two emails at most, right? Okay. And maybe that's part of the problem is that people lose track of those postprints somehow in their process. But theoretically, that's also the version they should be putting on research eight mm-hmm. or academia as well, right. right? So it makes me think that part of the reason they're using those social networks is they don't care about the copyright implications. Well, yeah, because that was my next question was about that <laughs> quality control when you're using like the different items you just mentioned when you're working with the academic social networks versus the institutional repositories, which you just sort of went through. Yeah, and I, and I mean, the copyright thing is a real concern because they could get into trouble for posting the wrong version. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, it makes way more sense to rely on us to do the work of ensuring that because, you know, only if you work in copyright do you have any confidence <laughs> around areas of copyright. I don't even want to check it myself. I send it to the person from our institutional repository to check it to make sure. And um I think maybe there's that there's that fuzziness there that they feel like, well, I don't want to have to worry about they don't have to worry about it with the institution if they're doing it with the institutional repository because we check it, but maybe that message isn't getting out there. Um we certainly don't check the quality of the paper. You know, I mean we pass absolutely no judgment on mm-hmm. the things that they're putting in there, right? If you publish an article, we'll put it in there. We're not gonna read it and 
right. you know, make sure it's good or not. Yeah, you're not a review um, board like that. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. We just, we're, you know, this is institutional output. We're going right. to, we're going to support it. And much like ResearchGate, you know, you can put anything you want as long as you're affiliated with U of L. But there is that piece of it that we're a little bit more careful, I think, about. I mean, ResearchGate and Academia will give you a message. Make sure you have the copyrights to this before you post it. Mm-hmm. And people probably just say yes, right. whether they check or not. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take a short break from the podcast episode. You can find Nicole's article on the Open Access Research Repository website called Opus at the University of Lethbridge by going to https colon slash slash O-P-U-S dot U-L-E-T-H dot C-A. So, yeah, did you find differences between the two, the, the two academic social networks that you reviewed? So anything that stood out between ResearchGate and academia.edu? Well, so only the fact that ResearchGate tended to get used more by our researchers but the proportions were very similar. So, you know, the proportion of people, say, using only ResearchGate or using the ResearchGate and the institutional repository, those proportions were very similar to the people that were using academia only or a combination of both. And in both cases, even those people who were quite active on the social network, they would post things in the institutional repository, but by a far fewer number. Yeah. Yeah. Your graphs were pretty convincing mm-hmm. that. yeah so yeah <laughs> on your paper it was like pretty clear <laughs> yeah so. yeah and then the other the other uh real difference that i certainly noticed um academia has i mean they will advertise that they have far more profiles in their system period by anyone but far more of those profiles are just sort of those empty shells mm-hmm. so when people and i think the reason part of the reason for that is that Academia doesn't actually require an institutional email to sign up for an account. Uh, so ResearchGate actually vets it via the, so in our case, at uleft.ca. So there's a slight more quality control there that if you have a uleft email address, you're probably more mm. legitimately associated with that university. Whereas Academia, you can set it up, you know, through Google, your Google account or Facebook or an email. And, and so then in that sense, people, I I even happened to me, I accidentally had to cancel it, right? One I had set up with my university email and one I had set up with my personal email and never the twain shall meet. I cannot make them merge those profiles. So I have like one kind of bogus profile out there myself. <laughs> and I can't even get rid of it. You can't delete it. Oh, wow. Well, you can actually delete it, but if you've got, if you oh, you have metrics, yeah. then you can't transfer those metrics. Oh, over. got it. Got it. <laughs> So I thought it was interesting because I read in your paper that they even had profiles like from like John Locke. Yeah. So this was a whole unintended area of that I discovered as a result of this. And in fact, this project didn't even start out as it wasn't even going to be a research paper. It was a way to target those researchers that we knew were active on these mm-hmm. prof- on these sites and say, hey, well, you, you posted these 10 papers on ResearchGate. Mm-hmm. Would you like to also post mm-hmm. them? in the institutional repository. It was more of a recruiting Mm -hmm. opportunity for us to try to Mm -hmm. fill our IR more. In the process, I found all these ridiculous things like clearly faked, you know, just titles that were crazy, like, and obviously not academic in nature. And 
names that were totally made up, like you say, the John Locke example, you know, I don't think he works at our university. And then, then they had even posted some of his work his from like the work. 1700s, right, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> I was like, wow, exactly. that's, I guess, but that's a lot of effort even. <laughs> well, I know, I know. And then to somehow claim affiliation with the U L is weird. So I found that also like potentially an institutional reputation problem, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if Someone is putting something. I didn't find any. I just found silly things. Right. But, you know, people could put bad, you know, potentially really damaged thing, mm -hmm. damaging things in their profiles and claim an unfair affiliation, which could damage an, an institutional reputation. And, mm -hmm. and I know that one at one point I had read in the literature, I think academia wanted to start marketing itself to universities as trying to say, oh, we can capture your institution, oh. but they don't, they clearly don't have the quality controls to mm -hmm. do that. Right. I mean, ideally that is also what an institution, I mean, first of all, you need hundred percent compliance and, and that's going to be virtually impossible. But, you know, I mean, if you're not even vetting who is associated with the university, then it's pretty hard to be able to turn around and charge universities to say, oh, we can show you how much attention your researchers' publications are getting on mm -hmm. our site. I mean, yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, what do you think the future of academic social networks are? Well, so I think unless they find a way to monetize themselves, and certainly academia tries to do that. I get emails from them all the time saying, upgrade, upgrade, we'll tell you who's mentioning you. And I mean, probably some people do pay for that. So I assume that they will all go that way. If they don't, they could just disappear. And there goes all the work you put into depositing your full tax there, right? As a, And that's sort of the difference there with the archival quality of the institutional repository. I think there's still going to be popular. I mean, much like many of, I think people will still continue to use them and they certainly are useful. I mean, I get, sometimes I get articles pushed to me based on other things I've looked at in there and I find new articles that are totally useful to me. So, I mean, that is one really good use that they do have that the institutional repositories don't, but I suppose they can build that functionality in at some point. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So what are your recommendations for institutions around the use of academic social networks versus institutional repositories? So based on what you learned, what would you recommend to institutions? So I, I mean, honestly, ideally, I think if you had positions dedicated to this sort of thing, you could do a better job of actually recruiting your own faculty to put, to be more active in depositing to the institutional repository. But you could also have oversight of some of those yeah, academic social networks that are out there. So if you had a position that, you know, in the research office or in the library that could be double checking the content and who's claiming affiliation and should they be and, and being able to maybe make those, those, um, institutional profiles more complete in all of those places you know to me that would be ideal obviously most institutions are sort of scrambling for funds and positions so it, this is like in an ideal world i know it's probably not that realistic but i do think i mean we could maybe be doing a better job at least trying to ensure you know maybe even setting up a google scholar alert every time someone from our institution publishes something we automatically send them an email and say, hey, do you want to submit that to the institutional repository and at least have a tighter control or a more 
not control, but a more, more comprehensive set of data in our own institutional repository that better reflects our own researchers and is more complete, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think I, I read that you even changed the name of the institutional repository? Yes, we, yes, because we often said, well, institutional repository, that sounds very <laughs> institutional. <laughs> what people don't even know what that means. And not, I mean, we rebranded ours as Opus, like a, you know, uh -huh. your body of work, right? But, yep. um, and so people probably don't know what that means. <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah, yeah, I catchy. And, and, you know, it gave us a chance to talk about it again, right? Uh -huh. We hadn't, so we established our institutional repository in 2007. And the last time I arrived in 2008, and then right around 2008, 2009 was when we were doing a lot of concerted promotion of it, right? So going around to all the faculties and departments, really talking about it, putting out some brochures about it, explaining the benefits, explaining that we had this thing. And then we kind of just let it coast for a while. And so, you know, 10 years later, we thought, well, if we rebrand it, it gives us sort of an opportunity to roll that out and get a little bit more promotion about it again. And you know, in the meantime, there's been faculty turnover. Some of those faculty may never have heard that we have this. And so, you know, I mean, I guess every time we talk about it, there are certainly people, and some of them have been there for 20 or 30 years, that say, really, we have an institutional repository? <laughs> so, you know, every time, I guess, we go out and, and do that, we right. get a few more people that are aware. But it always feels a bit frustrating because even though I know a lot of people that do know it, and I had a, an in-depth talk with a colleague a couple of months ago, actually, and she said, no, I know, I it, I just need to make it part of my workflow, because right. I know I should be doing this. I don't, right? So it's somehow just get, making that simpler, and whether it's sending out reminders or whatever. Just, right. Just it simpler yeah, yeah, Do, doing a lot of that uh, marketing work, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which, which you probably uh, you know, I mean, like night, right? day job, right? So... <laughs> Well, and you also don't want to be a pest, right? Because right? sometimes I feel like we hammer these things so much. And the people that know, know and go, oh, right. are you really talking about this again? <laughs> <laughs> so you also don't want to annoy your, right. your yes. the other people. I, I, I agree. <laughs> so my, my last question is, uh, what's one piece of advice you would give a researcher depositing their work in a depository, whether it's a academic social network or an institutional repository? I always say, and I, I actually give workshops on, you know, increasing your impact and sort of knowledge mobilization. And the thing I say is it's fine to have profiles in all these places. It's great. You know, the more places you have your work, the better, because the more chances are someone will end up finding it in, you know, a Google search or whatever, Google Scholar in the discovery layer. The thing that I always say, though, is why would, why not put my own personal practice, and, and I, I recommend it to others. I'll put my full text, the actual copy of the article, whatever allowed version of that article it is, in our institutional repository, because I know someone has checked and ensured that that is the right version to go copyright-wise. Then I will go to all the other sites and add the citation and then include a link that will drive people back to the institutional repository to get the full text. Because number one, then I'm not I'm I'm ensuring that I'm not posting the wrong version on some other site that's going to get me into copyright trouble. Um, but also, I'm accruing the usage in one place. So you you know you could have ten downloads on ResearchGate and five downloads on Academia and 
25 on the institutional repository, but you have to kind of monitor all that. And if you're driving everyone to get the full text in one place, then you're only occurring those downloads in one place. So to oh. me, that is my one reason for that. Now, there's nothing wrong with once I've checked and I and I know that my institutional repository said, yes, I can use the postprint version. I could then take that same version and post it on all these other sites. That's perfectly fine too. But I always, I always do the IR first because then I know which version is the okay version to use. So have lots of profiles, but make sure you've, you've, you know, the, the big biggest benefit to me about the institutional repository is we check the copyright and we ensure the longevity because even if those other sites all disappear and go down or, or deprecate over the years, the institutional repository should really, as long as we have a university, it'll be there. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That, that sounds like very good advice for, for this. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, so I just want to thank you for joining me today. Um, it, it was, uh, I learned a lot and it was very, very interesting. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun to talk about. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about InVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com.